Hello, listeners. I'm Jacob Shapiro. To be honest, this is not the way I was expecting to kick off this podcast series, but we live in very unexpected times. The original plan was to launch this podcast in early May and to have my good friend Jeremy Boynton be one of the pod's first guests. Now, with everything that's happening around COVID-19 and the global pandemic, we felt like we wanted to get a podcast out about COVID-19 sooner rather than later, and Jeremy was kind enough to agree to join. Jeremy is a good friend of mine and the founder of uh, Laureate Wealth Management. We've known each other for, I don't know, over five years now, and I, I really appreciate him coming on and being our first guest, especially because he models what it means to come at a topic from a different perspective, but to be able to have a conversation with somebody who agrees with you on some things and disagrees with you on other things. So thank you, Jeremy, and we hope you enjoy this conversation, which is about the impact of COVID-19 on everything from the markets to social media and about the long-term implications for global globalization. Uh, one more bit of housekeeping before we get to it. Please stay tuned for more podcasts and updates from me. Like I said, I'm working on some exciting things right now, and this will be the first episode of what I hope will be a very long and very informative series of podcasts, and I'll be able to share more about that in the next month. In the meantime, you can find updates from me at my daily newsletter. You can sign up for that at jshap which is jashap.substack.com, where you can follow me on Twitter, at Jacob Schapp, or on LinkedIn. Most importantly, stay safe and take care. We'll see you out there. I was an advisor, you know, during the Great Financial Recession in 2008. And uh, there are many comparisons, I think, but certainly uh, in another sense, there's no comparison. I mean... You know, the GDP contraction, the the effect on the real economy, on people who can't afford to miss a paycheck is unbelievably larger this uh, time than it was in 08. But then, nonetheless, there are some comparisons on that on that economic sense level. But clearly, that was a good old fashioned unwind of credit. You know, it's happened before the world. Certainly in my lifetime, I have never experienced a pandemic where you sort of almost have martial law the world over. Um, <laughs> it's, it's quite fascinating to watch. Yeah, I don't know how things are in uh, outside of Chicago right now. I mean, our, our mayor, Steve Adler, here in Austin just talked about he's getting the shelter-at-home bill ready. He's, he's not going to pass it quite yet, but they're getting ready to do it. Although, I don't know, for me, that doesn't change that much. I've been staying at home now for the last week and a half because my wife is a nurse, so I feel like we're kind of high-risk in general, so I'm trying not to interact with any human beings. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the same here. Uh, we, we went, you know, to the uh, shelter at home, stay in place, whatever you want to call it, uh, officially at, I think it was five o'clock this past Saturday, but really for the last several weeks. I mean, my kids have been home from school. My son's home from college. It's, it's sort of already been in motion. Uh, it was sort of more of a formality than anything else. The first thing you said that you wanted to talk about with me was you wanted to talk about the kill rate and the infection rate. Now, I've done a little bit of research here. My, my research is a little bit old. It's a couple of days old at this point, and yeah. so much is changing that it almost feels like every day we're getting something new. But tell me a little bit about what about the kill rate and the, what what is the kill rate and the infection rate telling you? Right. So, so if I could like step back and and sort of frame the context of why I think those things are important, I I, I actually th come from a sort of a, a view that says. Uh, the, the 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 actual medical facts on the ground aren't really the the most responsible uh, triggers of what's going on. I think the the most responsible triggers have to do with the social media driven um, Me Too political movement that's been sort of forced on us um, from deriving opinions about the medical science. So I know I know that's kind of a wordy thing to say, but basically. There are two hotly debated ideas relating to the science. Number one is what is the kill rate? And number two, what's the infection rate going to be? And mm -hmm. so, so the way I like to do is try to find other comparisons. And, uh, you know, one thing we know, one thing that's been studied uh, extensively is that the, uh, the kill rate for the common flu uh, is between 291,000 and 650,000 deaths globally every year. Mm -hmm. Those are big numbers. Um, and we, we know that the kill rate, or I'm sorry, the, the infection rate uh, of, of those deaths uh, re is the result of a 0.1 to 0.2% kill rate. Mm -hmm. right? So if you take the 
uh, the worst kill rate of a 0.2 in that spectrum. And you take a really bad flu season and you're talking about 650,000 deaths. What you're implying is that 325 million people worldwide get the flu every year to, to result in 650,000 deaths. And so as, as a picture and as a context, to put that next to what we're experiencing today is it's, it's just sort of frustrating and mind-boggling to me. I, and I don't mean to to uh, belittle the pain and the harsh realities of what is happening to real life people. But we're talking about, uh, you know, I mean, I've got a, you know, sort of a a counter that's constantly being updated all the time. And I'm going to look at it right now. We're talking about total worldwide cases of 375,000 with uh, 16,000 deaths. So if we're going to try to say, how do we get a pandemic that is equivalent to a bad flu season? How do we get from 16,000 to 650,000 deaths? You know, what kind of a kill rate would we have to assume, which would also give us some sense of the kind of actual infections that we'd need? Well, the, the sort of the high end of the kill rates that are being postured out there globally are 3%. And so kind of working backwards, 3% on 650,000 means you're going to have to infect over 21.5 million people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't see it. I mean, you've got China and you've got South Korea, who, sort of the genesis blocks. If you Obviously, China is the genesis block, but, but these countries are, are coming out the other side. Um, and, and, you know, China has got an 80,000 number. I mean, is, is China going to get to... 160, are they going to double their count? Probably not. Um, now, it's certainly possible that some of the uh, younger countries, quote unquote, if you will, like the U.S., could could certainly explode higher as they are today. But I, I fail to understand how uh, we, we can get from the kinds of numbers that we're dealing with today up to the kinds of deaths and infections that 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 would have to materialize for us even just to get to a particularly bad flu season. And there are some more granular things underneath that that we can dig into in terms of of uh, stability on surfaces and, and a, a few other things that are kind of interesting. Uh, but that's sort of my basic sort of frustration question um, direction of my thinking. Well, let, let, let me uh, let me play a little devil's advocate there with you. Um, sure. my, my, my research is a, a week or two old, I would say. And like I said, stuff is changing so radically. Sure. But let's throw down a couple stats. So the WHO fatality rate right now is 3.4%. I think you said around 3% was what the upper limit was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the reason that's it's scary for a number of reasons. It's, it's especially scary because it's larger than the Spanish flu. So you talked about 0.1%, 0.2% in a normal flu season. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spanish flu was 2.5%. And yep. Spanish flu was particularly scary because it didn't go after the weak or the elderly or any of those. It went after young people. It basically created this autoimmune response that was so intense that people between the ages of 20 and 40 were dying from it at a, at a rate. So it was just really scary, I guess, in that sense. It had a, almost like a the effect of terrorism to it. Now, there was another guy. Uh, this is a Harvard professor whose name is Samuel Faust. And he did a study on the um, the cases that were on that cruise ship, the Diamond Princess. Yes. And that, that, that was a great one because it was basically isolated. So he got a really good chance to hack into the data. And the, the fatality rate on the Diamond Princess was 1.1%. Right. Now, that's, you know, that's higher than the 0.1%. And a lot of people on the cruise ship were going to be older. But that's still getting you to, to some of those percentage numbers. I think the point yeah. to make, though, is it's not necessarily about the absolute numbers. It's about preventing what happened or what is happening in Italy right now and what looks like it might be happening in New York right now, mm-hmm. which is that you get such a large surge in cases that you overwhelm a medical system and then you're doing real triage. Because then, you know, for the 5% of people who are hospitalized and will recover if they have intensive care units, there are no beds for them or there aren't enough beds. So you're having to choose which ones of these people die or which ones of these people live. You also have people who are, let's say you have a heart attack, or let's say somebody's having some other health problem, or they have an infection because they've been in the hospital for surgery or something like that. If the health system is overwhelmed and they can't actually respond to those other health needs because they're dealing with this massive influx of cases, 
um, then those people are going to die. And do you count those in the fatality numbers? I can tell you, I have a brother-in-law who's a, he used to be a firefighter and he's buddies with all the firefighters and EMTs down there in Covington, Georgia. Um, and I heard from him that you know, the, they weren't even going out for calls unless it was a straight up heart attack. If somebody was calling 911 and saying, I need medical attention, they'd basically be like, well, unless you're about to literally die, nobody's coming out there to get you because we're completely overwhelmed or we're planning for the future, this, that, or the other thing. So I, I, I think the, the response to you is not that I'm not going to sit here and say that it's so scary. The absolute numbers are so scary. What is scary is if you get into a position like New York looks like it in right now. I think what they got 20,000 cases today or something like that. You've got a, a state of 20 million that already has more cases than the entire country of Germany, country yeah. with 80 million people. The New York City hospitals are about to get slammed and they don't have the beds and they don't have the medical equipment. And people are going to have to make really, really tough decisions. And that's where you start getting those crazy fatality numbers. Italy over the weekend get, had 793 people die in one day. It's because it's not because the virus is more deadly in Italy. It's because they, they couldn't handle it. Well, it could be that the virus is more deadly in Italy. I mean, there are there are. Uh, I mean, we don't know. We don't. We, we it, it would be too early to say. You know, but but I, I get. I take your point uh, uh, for sure. Uh, it, it really, that's why I think it's, it's, it's about the kill rate and the infection rate, because it, it ultimately it's about worrying about deaths or the stress of the medical system. And, and, you know, I've got a number of physicians in multiple different disciplines that, that are, that are clients of mine. And, and, you know, they're, they're also saying this very same thing that the, you know, the system isn't built to tolerate it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe, maybe that's true. Uh, but, but the counterpoint to that would be that, that if you talk about this so-called flattening the curve. Have you have you heard about the you know the, instead of you know this social distancing is meant to take away the massive spike and peak mm -hmm. in 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 uh, infections. But mm -hmm. but but what that does statistically is it it doesn't actually result in a lower area under the curve. It just spreads out the um, the damage, if you will, over a longer period of time. So, so the same number of infections or the same number of deaths actually ultimately occur. They just don't occur all at once. And I, I realized that that is a definite positive strategy to sort of try to remove uh, the, the stress point uh, that Italy is facing right now. I'm simply saying that there's, it, as harsh as it sounds, there's a cost-benefit analysis to think through as to when, when is that economic uh, damage that we're inflicting on the economy worth that uh, price. I mean, I mean, we're talking about a third, maybe upwards of a third of, uh, you know, the population uh, without a job, right? I, you know, th there's so many people in this world that live paycheck to paycheck that cannot afford to not, you know, collect tips at the bar or waiting tables uh, for, you know, they can't be out of work for two weeks. They just can't pay their bills. And, and, and if we're wrong and we're being a little hysterical on the, you know, for sure it's happening in Italy, maybe it's happening in New York, but it, it's not happening everywhere. And they're just, you know, the Princess cruise ship is a perfect example of an, it's the only isolated, you know, self-contained system of people that should be at high risk. And yet the death rate is, is, you know, a little over 1%. Um, and, and if, if the death rate really is at 1%, uh, then, then all of these really large outlandish claims, they, they can't, you can't get there from here on, on a globalized global system level. Um, this idea of people not being able to live paycheck to paycheck, um, you know, they still can't get that that bill through the Senate right now. And yep. even the bill that they have right now says they're going to give, you know, $1,200 one-time payments to people. That's a joke if they think that's going to do anything. It's For like, sure. I, mean, I agree. But, but yeah, we'll, we'll get there. But I, uh, to your point about the the curve, um, flattening the curve just buys you time. That, that That's all it buys you. Anytime you're in a crisis, it, like let's say you're in a financial crisis, right? The reason you're going to lower interest rates if you're in some kind of financial crisis is to try and buy yourself as much time as possible so that you can try and fix the situation. If, if you do flatten the curve and you aren't able to get more ICU beds or you aren't able to get more masks or you aren't able to help the healthcare system deal with all of these things, flattening the curve, like you're saying, it's really just going to kind of delay the inevitable. 
And I sure. think the, the deeper point there starts starts traipsing on some of my geopolitical thoughts because you know a lot of the things that we need, just some of the basic things that we need, you know, masks so that doctors and nurses don't get exposed. The way that in Italy you've got, you know, I, f- I forget what the percentage is, but some ridiculous percentage of their doctors and nurses and medical medical care workers are coming down with this disease because they don't have the medical equipment. Well, what's the problem here? That the supply chain, it's a Chinese monopoly. They've yeah. got everything. And the United States, they're talking about delivering, I, I think I saw the Trump administration say you know, they, they made their order for however many tens or hundred millions of masks. It might take them 18 months to do it. And that's because the Chinese, own, not only do they own the supply chain, as soon as stuff started going wrong in Wuhan and they locked Wuhan down. I mean, a lot of people think you're quote unquote locked down in the US. You don't even know what lockdown is. <laughs> Wuhan was locked down, right? Yeah. And it took them two months of real lockdown to get to zero cases there. But when they were doing that, when the Chinese weren't telling everybody how bad it was and they had everything under control, they didn't just start producing masks for themselves and stop, they, they stopped selling them abroad. They were also importing millions of masks. There was one week at the end of January where they imported 56 million masks and respirators. And, and part of the problem here is we just don't have the equipment we need. How are we going to get the beds? To your point, it's, it's almost a deeper question where it's like, great if you, can, if you can flatten the curve, but if we cannot get our health system in gear um, any more than it was before, then we're just delaying the inevitable. Now, the social distancing thing is a little different because if you lock down like they did in Wuhan, they're at zero cases. Now, it took them two months. Is two months uh, of worth two months worth of economic cost worth it to get down to zero cases? In your opinion, I you know I think uh, I, I think obviously I'm kind of leaning no, but I hold that very open handedly. And here here's why I hold that because if you so, so the real the real nitty gritty of it is uh, how does this how does this virus behave differently than others? Well, there's a couple of ways, like to support the the other side of the table, like like against my own view. Uh, you know, people are um, uh, people are uh, uh, in uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You, you can uh, they can transmit the disease in an asymptomatic way. They don't even know they have it, and they're mm-hmm. they're 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 spreading it. Right. So that's a first, right? That's not influ- influenza, and it's not the the, the sister disease SARS, uh, kind of SARS one, right? This is severe acute respiratory syndrome COV two, where there's a COV one, which was the SARS uh, two thousand three epidemic. Yes, what a right? lovely family. Yeah, really. <laughs> but but this so so this this family has been around for a while actually, and that's so and 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 um. Uh, so, so there are there are other markers to look at. Well, uh, the the uh, the, um, the 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 uh, what's the word? The permanence or the durability? That's the word I'm looking for. The durability of the virus in an aerosol form, meaning free floating in there, or on various surfaces. You know, from copper to uh, uh, plastic to cardboard to all these all these things are measured. There are New England Journal of Medicine papers already out on COVID two. COVID-19, as well as uh, obviously SARS-2003, as well as the flu. And, and so the, thing, the two unique things about COVID-19 are it's durable longer and you can get it, you can spread it with, with, uh, in an asymptomatic way. And so the, to me, the science end of the community has been f- sort of freaking out about that, extrapolating really large infection rates on the basis of scaring people into taking it seriously. Um, and I, I, I just, I don't have any proof. This is not a scientific thing to measure, but it just seems like overkill. Uh, people are dying. It's a real thing. You should wash your hands. We need to be careful. Um, but the damage that we're inflicting on the economy is just unfathomable. I mean, it's just there's there's way more real world pain, and I'm not sure that it is worth it. Frankly, I'm not sure that if we had just had more sensible, hey, wash your hands, wear a mask, do your part, uh, but let's not shut down the world economy. Uh, I'm not sure that that wouldn't have been a better way. I don't I don't really know whether uh, that you know whether we're going to be able to look back and say, aha, we did the right thing. Yeah, and I mean, this goes back to your point about when do you implement social distancing and when do you shut things down? If you shut things down too late, (laughs) there's nothing you can actually do. These sorts of measures only work if if you catch it really, really early and if everybody actually observes it. So Mm -hmm. 
Now, th those folks that were out there partying at Mardi Gras in New Orleans, when we already knew that this stuff was spreading and it was really important to try and get the situation under control, that's a disaster. Those, mm -hmm. those kids who were at spring break in Miami, we know that this stuff is spreading. We, we know that we're, we might have enough time to get this thing under control. I'd throw those kids in jail right now. <laughs> I, I, don't know what, I don't know what the difference is between that and yelling fire in a crowded room or, you know, I, or, or spreading mm -hmm. AIDS to somebody if you know that you have AIDS. I mean, just unreal. But, but to your point, I mean, at a certain point, you can't either you have to lock it down for a really long time or it's, it's just not going to work. So a place like New York City, they're kind of already screwed. If you're, totally. in a if you're in a community where you're not already screwed, what you can do is you can go really hard for a couple of weeks, go as hard as you possibly can for two, three weeks. And then hopefully you can kind of come up for breath. You can kind of figure out what's going on, all those other things. If you're trying to combat lockdown with a disease that is already all over the place, and this is kind of what we saw in Italy, you're going to get those, those, that overwhelming of the healthcare system. Now they're finally starting to get it down because they finally lock stuff down. So eventually you do have to sort of do that. But yeah, to your point, the timing is everything, but let's, let's hack into the economic destruction point. Cause you're, you're sounding more pessimistic actually than I thought you were going to sound. So t you, you really think this is how bad do you think this is going to be? Oh, I, I, I think, uh, you know, certainly uh, it's moving very quickly and I could change my mind in 30 minutes. Um, but right now, I think the most likely outcome is that we figure the science out. I think there's a couple of things that are really close. I think a combination of a Z-Pak and an anti-malarial drug is highly likely to show some efficacy. And um, it wouldn't take much for the narrative to shift and for the markets to recover somewhat. But to some extent, the damage is done. Q Q2 GDP is, you know, probably 30% lower. It comes back online. It, a lot of it's going to be pent up demand that gets recovered in the second half of the year. And for people with means, it's not a really big deal. It's kind of fun to have my kids all at home under one roof um, <laughs> and have more family time. But, you know, if I'm a if I'm a, uh, a waiter at one of my favorite restaurants in town or a bartender or any number of sort of blue collar or wh whatever the politically correct term is for that, I mean, you cannot pay your rent. And $1,200 handout checks probably doesn't get it done either. You know, if, if we stay on lockdown till May, uh, I just, it's, it'll be really ugly. What does that mean in practical terms? What, what do you think the government can do to kind of help that along? I saw that in France is a weird test case because there's so much centralized control and especially for the president there, but he just basically canceled rent and canceled all the bills and said, don't worry, we're going to handle everything. And but for the first time, Germany and the ECB austerity is gone. It's debt, debt, debt. We're going to, we're going to bail everyone out. We're going to do everything that we possibly can. Is there a suite of fiscal or monetary tools that you think the U.S. government can use to kind of staunch the bleeding for a certain amount of time? Or I, do you really I mean, think we just don't have it? I think they're doing it. I mean, we are at levels of QE that are larger. You know, it's unrestricted QE, right? I mean, it took us months in the 08 financial crisis, probably, if I remember right, four to six months to get really strong QE going. And, you know, we're, we're, what are we, 30 days in? And, and we, we've got, uh, we've got uh, monetary policy responses larger than the 08 crisis and fiscal uh, stimulus policies uh, being uh, chased. I mean, obviously we don't have them yet, but, but uh, the, you know, the things that the government can do are being done. But to be honest, if it, if it goes till May or June, um, I don't think those help. I mean, uh, I think I think what helps is we 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 find treatment. I mean, a, va a vaccine is out of the question. That's a year and a half away. We're not going to be. Yeah, we're not. That's not. We're not going to find that. Um, but they're you know finding anything that can shorten the, uh, the 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 life of the virus in the human body by you know three three days to seven days is a tectonic shift in the uh, uh, in the in the curve. By flattening the curve. To talk a little bit about, um, so you already kind of mentioned social media and you threw me too in there, which I wasn't expecting either. So talk a little bit about social media because you, you said in, in one way you think it's, and correct me if I'm putting words in, in your mouth, but it, it, it sounded like you thought that social media was feeding into this panic and that it was creating a panic that was unnecessary. Yeah. At the same time, I, 
I can't tell you how many people I know that I've had to yell at who were like, hey, you want to go play pickup basketball with the guys and get 15 guys together? And I have to be like, what the fuck is your problem? Like, no, I don't want to play basketball. I'm going to come kick your ass if, if you are. Like, I, I think that people are saying one thing and then you look on their Instagrams and, oh, I'm social distancing. I'm out here like drinking with my buddies. We're real distant. It's like, what like what the crap is going on? So just talk a little bit to me about what you think oh. social media is doing, because to me, it's telling me nobody's doing anything. I love that question. You're teeing it up. Uh, it's like, I'm so excited you asked it exactly that way. There's a book written by, hold on, I'm going to look it up. Uh, uh, it's on my Audible account here. Let's see if I can find it real quick. It's called um, Everybody Lies uh, <laughs> by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Okay. And, and basically. Sounds like he's one of my people. <laughs> He he unpacks, hey, why did Trump win the election? Because all of the sophisticated, algorithmically driven polling mechanisms leading up to the election based on, you know, Facebook uh, posts or this or that, all these really fancy models said there's no way he can win. Mm-hmm. And uh, and, oh, you know, and, and in, in the setting of Trump's election, in the setting of local governments in Alabama uh, adjudicating race cases, you know, and I'm talking about in today's world, I mean, he, he goes and finds all of these disparate examples of where uh, everybody's lying. Social media is it's image management. It's it's not uh, you cannot use social media as a fact checking source of truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, the most. The most overt example of that is, you know, there are there are businesses uh, in social media, I, I'm told, where you can have your you can have your portrait, you know, kind of airbrushed into some scenery and you know, whatever, uh, France or Tahiti or just to, just, just to make it look like you, you took a really beautiful photo of some place you you've never been to mm-hmm. brag about your vacation. And, and so we're just all about saying one thing on social media and doing another. I think that's a part of it. What I'm really saying though is it is an extremely powerful force in our culture that we don't even realize. But when you get this social narrative heading a certain direction, I mean, the president of a university, the pastor of a church, the CEO of a company, you know, the head of the local symphony, anybody who's responsible for anything that interfaces with the economy or or really uh, any kind of a social setting has to answer to to this this certain social media movement, and and they're scared of the lawyers. And you you can't you're worried about your job. You can't be the CEO and not take into the account the fact that every other CEO in your industry just closed up shop. And if you don't, you're going to be in a field by yourself. And if you're not right, you'll be out of a job. And I think that power has caused what I'm calling this Me Too movement in all aspects of everything I just mentioned. Everybody who has a job that influences people, including our government, including politicians, you know, they, they want to be seen on the right side of that social media case as well to pander to their constituents. Well, yeah, our, our president uh, seems particularly obsessed with social media, but it, it also strikes me that that doctor in China who was kind of the first whistleblower on what was going on with COVID, he was on Weibo. He was basically on Chinese social media telling all his doctor friends and medical worker friends, there's something going on here in Wuhan. Like, this is not normal. We need to, to get a handle on this. And um, I guess the difference between the United States and China is that in the United States, the mob judges you. And in China, the government reads your social media and then come and arre- comes and arrests you and makes you write a letter about how you were disturbing social harmony. And then two weeks later, you get the virus that you were warning about and then you die. You, you really can't make that story up, you know? Yeah. This is the first global crisis that social media has presided over as the de facto leader of the of the news cycle in, in at least in the markets right i mean in 08 we had social media but people were still watching the five o'clock news uh it wasn't the dominant source of information today the news agenda is social media driven yeah it's it's honestly it's one of the reasons i'm doing this podcast it's one of the reasons i'm reasons i'm having people on like you who some things we agree with some things i disagree with it's the reason i'm pumping out articles right now and lots of content because I mean, the the line between where social media begins and where journalism begins at this point has become so blurred that I can't even really tell. And everything just feels like an echo chamber. And I can turn on 
know, something happens and I can, I can tell you exactly what Fox and what right-wing social media is going to be saying about it. And I can tell you exactly what MSNBC and left-wing social media is going to be saying about it. And I can tell you exactly, I can tell you exactly how CNN is going to try and split the difference. And it's just the same shit over and over and nobody's actually hacking into it. Um, and totally in that agree. in that sense, I think we're impoverished. I mean, like, I what's totally happening? Agree. You can't trust any of it on both sides. They're they're both inaccurate, and you don't even know you don't even know how to get truth anymore. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite stats to trot out when I talk about this, and this is a hobby horse of mine, I guess. It's it's it even goes beyond social media. Um, it's something like ninety nine percent of people, when they search for something on Google, they click the top three entries, yeah. and that's it. Um, that means that Google is literally defining knowledge for people because their algorithm is what's defining what's in that top three. And if you're outside the top three, you're not getting there. So if there's a false narrative, if there is a deep fake, if there is something that is coming up in that top three, and that's what you're clicking on, that's what everybody's clicking on, you get this kind of herd mentality. Um, and like you're saying, it, it's this this echo chamber where everybody is kind of feeding in on everybody else. And that gets scary because that's, you know, when political theorists talk about fascism and the the types of um, social environments that lead to fascist governments or to authoritarian governments, it's when you get these echo chambers where everybody is just repeating their same thing over and over with more emotion and more passion, but not actually dealing with information, not actually going and reading a book and figuring out what happened with this thing or what actually happened in the real economy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's one of those scary things. Yeah, yeah, it's it's totally that, and and it. Um... Uh, well, I, let's move on. I just, uh, I, I just, it, it's frustrating to me to watch, um, you know, there's, you know, the best lies are mostly true, right? I tell mm -hmm. my, I tell my kids, right? If you want to, if you, you know, don't lie, but if, you know, as you, as you get older and you, you know, bloody your nose and you fall down and you remember how to learn from that uh, and you think through how, where did I make my mistake? Inevitably, it comes back to figuring out how to reconcile the truth and figuring out how you convinced yourself something that you wanted to believe. And it was a lot. A lot of it was true. It might have been 90 percent true. Um, and that's that's the trick is uh, a lot of, you know, 90 percent truth and 100 percent true are two very different outcomes in life, generally speaking, over the long haul. Yeah. But before we move on, I just I got to say two things to that. The first is you're, you're reminding me of. Um of an anecdote about Lyndon B. Johnson, who was a prolific liar, um, one of the best liars the United States has ever seen. And uh, if you go and read Robert Caro's biographies of LBJ, the reason that LBJ was such a good liar, the reason Caro thinks he was such a good liar, was because LBJ would literally convince himself that the lie was true before he would tell it. And so reality for LBJ once he decided he was going to lie, that was the reality. It wasn't yeah. like he knew that he was consciously. No, it was like his brain was like, okay, I am now choosing to believe this thing and this is reality for me. So that's one mm -hmm. part of it. But the second part, and this goes back to the social media thing, and I, I don't think you meant it in this way, but I think it applies just as well. And in some ways, it's just as insidious. Think about China. China's the reason we're in this boat. This started in China. China covered it up at first. Uh, China was not forthright with the international community about how bad things were. Look at how China's trying to shape that narrative now, right? Everybody on social media, every single article that you see out of China, it's about how China's delivering masks to the Italians. China's sending its medical teams to Greece. China's the only country that's been able to get the cases to zero, all these other things. China's basically trying to reshape a narrative where the world looks at the United States and looks at how the Senate can't even pass a simple stimulus bill and looks at President Trump and his ridiculous press conferences on the one side. And then they look at China and China's saying, hey, we got some masks for you uh, and our doctors know how to deal with this thing. And these Americans are really crazy, aren't they? We hope you're not going to stick with them when this, when this mess is all over. And again, that, that goes to what you're talking about. There's an element of truth there. A centralized authoritarian regime can control things more than the United States can, but it's also kind of covering up the fact that how did we get here? What what, what is the truth? What is the not? What is the thing that actually happened that put us in this situation? I worry that we're going to forget about that based on the way that they're kind of whitewashing it in media. Yeah, for sure, I totally agree. And only you know, only time will tell. Sort of, you know, I think we'll look back on this in ten years and probably. Uh, both of us, at least. Well, I'll just admit for myself, I'm sure that I'll look back on this in 10 years and, and have a better view of what I don't really understand about it now. I mean, this, you know, time, time will, 
give us a better perspective on that. Yeah, I think the only th- the only thing I think we can say for sure is that it's uh, the world has changed. I, I don't think we're going to go back to normal. Um, in some ways, you know, two thousand and eight changed a bunch of things. Or people liked this goes back to our social media conversation because of the two thousand eight great financial crisis. You know, a lot of companies felt like their supply chains to China in particular got disrupted, and they made a lot of noise about how oh it wasn't good. We're going to change our supply chains. We're not going to source things uh, single source things from China anymore. Fast forward 12 years, part of the reason we're in the situation with the masks is because nobody actually did it. Everybody right. talked a big game about how they were going to change their supply chains and how you couldn't, you know, it, it was the social media popular thing to kind of start railing against China because it was in the presidential election, all these other things, and nobody actually did it. And I think that one of the things that is going to come out of this economically, I wonder I wonder how you think about this. I've been describing kind of the supply chain with China almost as a bubble in and of itself because the, the Chinese were basically making things so cheaply and the government was intervening to make things so cheap that they were just undercutting everyone. And so everybody was just assuming that the only way that you could have a supply chain that was profitable was going through China. And I think that finally, as a result of what's going on here, both because of the way China shut down in January and February, but also because of the kind of um, nefarious things China's doing now, I think people are going to move away from that. I think people are finally going to say, you know what, it might cost more to move our supply chain to South America or to somewhere in Europe or this, that, or the other thing, but it's kind of work. It's kind of worth the risk. And I, I like sort of what you were saying about the world changing. I mean, I think we're going to get these kind of bifurcated or different spheres that aren't going to interact with each other. And you're going to get all this global competition at the top. Yeah, so you're 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 calling for uh, you know deglobalization. I just don't know that I'm qualified to know. I mean, I I'm kind of a cynic, and I think people say that now. But you know, we get a big enough bailout, and the world moves on, and you know, people have short memories, and people turn from fear to greed fairly quickly, mm-hmm. um, and it's going to come down to balance sheets, cash flow, and income statements, and bonuses, <laughs> but. But that's that's probably too cynical. Um, I do think that the world is going to change. I think that I think that uh, the whole kind of you know I can't tell you how many people are doing Zoom and mm-hmm. Google Hangout calls that a week ago never did it right. Mm-hmm. And and the idea that I don't have to have uh, as much square footage of office turns out I can run a company on quite a bit less <laughs> than. Uh, than, than I've been used to, right? I, so I think there will be some very interesting social dynamics that play into economic shifts. And maybe you're right. Maybe the the, the deglobalization one and the and the sort of rejection of the uh, Chinese supply chain will will play out. But um, I'm I'm not sure. I don't really. I'm not saying I don't think it'll happen. I'm just not not sure I have an opinion on that. Well, I don't know if people are going to do it, but I think this is kind of a get out of jail free card for some of those companies because. The, the reason not to get out of China was because you know, inertia and the cost of changing the supply chain and everything was so easy, but everything's going to be disrupted now. Everything is disrupted now. So if you were yeah. ever going to kind of make the move, now's the time. And I think either you're going to get that move towards deglobalization or China's just going to become more and more the center of the economic system. I was thinking about this earlier today. I'm not sure that the United States has gotten into a fight or gotten into a into a rivalry with any country like China in its history. When you look back at every single conflict or rivalry or competitive relationship that we've had, the United States has always been able to outproduce whoever it was competing against. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it was Japan, whether it was Germany, whether it was the Soviet Union, those were all jokes compared to the size of the US economy. China yeah. dwarfs us if they want to. If China decides it wants to flip the switch, um, they can do things that not even the United States can do, and we haven't really been in a in a in a knife fight with somebody like that quite yet. And I I wonder, you know, on the one hand, that kind of supports the Trump administration's point on being tough on China. On the other hand, I I, I worry a little bit that maybe the U.S. has bit off a little bit more than it can chew here. Yeah. <laughs> maybe so. I um, I I don't know. Um, and I and I don't I don't say this. Um in support of Trump, nor do I say it to, um, in opposition to him, but I do, I do feel like capitalism will find a way. I mean, I just, you know, it's true that in, you know, they've, they've got the population and the natural resources and there's pinup, um, there, there, there's a lot of things that feels like you could flip a switch and turn it on, but 
but the, the underlying motivations of humanity work better, in my opinion, in a, in a capitalist system. I don't know that, I don't know that an authoritarian regime um, is long-term as, as competitive on the world stage as a free markets capitalist society. Yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of the, the million-dollar question there with China because it's trying to have its cake and eat its too. It's basically trying to have state-run capitalism. And the dirty little secret that nobody remembers about the history of World War II and in particular the history of Nazi, of Nazi Germany was that fascism was great for the German economy. It was yeah. wonderful. It did wonders for them. One of the reasons that Germany, that West Germany, just West Germany, became an economic powerhouse after World War II was because of the policies that the Nazis had in place. It made them an export machine like nobody else in the continent could possibly yeah. be. So China's trying to marry capitalism with that state control and with a society that is more into collectivism, that is more into social harmony than it is into individual rights. So, do you think it works? Uh, it's hard to argue with the results right now, isn't it? That they need masks and they say, great, how many? And we'll deliver them via DHL in five days. We we say we need masks and it's like, uh, okay, like what, how, how do we make a mask? Oh, we need to go call our Chinese supplier. Oh, they're not answering the phone. Uh, uh, call 3M. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard right. to argue with the results. Tell me about... Um, Tell me about crypto and tell me how you think crypto is going to intersect with everything that's happening right now. I've been dying to ask you that question since all this popped off. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you we know each other. So, you know that I'm a, a very long term bull on crypto. I think that the, uh, uh, you know, this this unfortunate pandemic is another chapter in why I think uh, crypto is ultimately going to be successful. I mean, you know, the, the monetary response of the Federal Reserve um, is just breathtaking in its scope and its size, uh, certainly bigger than 08 already, and we're 30 days in, uh, and we're, we're nowhere near done um, with what they're going to throw at this. And every other major central bank on the planet is joining in. And, you know, that didn't quite happen last time. I mean, Europeans really drag their feet, you know, uh, but but nobody's dragging their feet. Everybody, everybody wants to go bigger and badder than 08. And and that ultimately is dilutive to currency. Right. Mm -hmm. And so having a stateless uh, store of value currency with a fixed monetary policy regime that cannot be politically uh, managed or massaged is is ultimately a really powerful competitor. Um, I'm not saying it's ever going to displace, but it's a powerful competitor on the world stage. And so I think, I think that this plays right into the hands ultimately of, of, of um, cryptocurrency. And, and I would say as an analogy or an analog, the way that gold acted in 08, and actually the way that gold is acting now in the early days of the crisis in 08, gold went down with everything, just like mm -hmm. everything else did. Um, but then when the monetary policy started to come out and people started to realize all of this money was going to be printed, it was really kind of the second wave where gold outperformed. And we're, we're actually in real time seeing that in exact narrative play out uh, in cryptocurrency and gold this time. But who's going to who's going to accept crypto? Uh, you know, it only takes one sovereign state to accept it for it to be viable which means they all will hmm. and they all are hmm. in varying measures but um yeah i'm trying to remember there uh, peter Thiel had something i can't remember if he said crypto was capitalist and ai was communist or the other way around do you remember that do you remember when he said that i don't um not a big fan of Peter Thiel, if he's listening. <laughs> I would bet that I would bet that uh, I would bet that crypto would be capitalist and AI would be communist. Yeah, yeah. There it is. Crypto is libertarian. Artificial Liberty. intelligence is communist. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's actually uh, that kind of goes back to our social media. I mean, you think about just something as simple as the music you listen to, right? Your whether it's. Uh, Spotify or iTunes or whatever, all of those things are algorithmically driven and they're watching you and they're figuring out what you like and they're driving you 
to what they think you think you like. And, and ultimately, we're all a product of these algorithms in terms of our choice of music. The entire industry is being turned upside down and reshaped by revenue streams that are far more predictable due to the fact that we're all the product of an algorithm now. Yeah, kind of, I guess kind of like the stock market itself too, right? Because that's just an algorithm as well. It's true. Yeah. So um, anyways, that's that's a bit over the top, but... Oh no! Uh, over the top is good. What, what 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 should people be investing in right now? Well, so I I have um, you know I have nineteen families around the country that I wealthy families that I manage money for, and we have been for twelve years, ever since coming out of the 08 recession, uh, building positions in investments that don't require the stock market to go up to make money. We've been We've been doing other things, you know, doing real estate deals or tax lien investments or uh, life settlements, all these other kinds of things. Uh, and and really, the firm that I'm run, my firm, Laureate Wealth Management, is built for this moment. And we're in the process of a pivot. We are, we are, you know, we look pretty smart at the moment, and we are we're trimming back a lot of these alternatives and building a war chest. And we're we're on the edge of moving towards the stock market. When we get to forty percent, we're going to start buying traditional stocks, uh, specific sectors that we like, but traditional stocks. Stocks, because I think, uh, you know, at forty percent, can this thing go down fifty or sixty? Sure, but at forty percent, you've you you've missed most of the um, pain, um, and the asymmetry for a three-year to five-year horizon in terms of a risk reward is very compelling, uh, especially in certain segments of the traditional stock market. So for the first time in a long time, I'm moving that way and my clients uh, don't even recognize me. They're, they're like, who are you and what have you done with Jeremy? <laughs> Jeremy, would, would, your, would your feeling about that change if I told you that we were gonna be in this kind of lockdown until June? Yes. It would. I, I'm thinking that this is something that we get through, you know, um, you know, sometime in April. Mm -hmm. I think we find I think we find some kind of a mitigating uh, therapeutic uh, regimen that helps. I think the numbers are bad, but not as bad as everybody's fearing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that. Um, you know, if, if it's June, uh, yeah, I'm not a buyer, but, but ultimately I'm, you know, ultimately I'm, I'm betting on, I'm betting on the U S I'm betting on capitalism. I'm betting on, we're not going to world anarchy. I mean, the other side is the populations all around the globe reject central banking authority. We throw the whole system away and we start over. And there were people saying that that can happen. I just, I think maybe that happened someday. I'm just thinking it's not happening today. All right. Fair enough. Um, before I let you get out of here, we were going to talk about some other things, but I, I don't want to over overload people's brains. And I think that there's a lot to think about there, but um, I wanted to also just ask you, um, how do you deal? And this goes back to how I introduced you. How does your faith process something like a virus like this? And, and how does how does your faith process the suffering that's happening with this sort of, I mean, it's, it's sort of the age old question, how does your faith deal with evil in the world? But when it's this front and center, when it's something like this, d does it bother you? Does it shake you at all? Or is it just kind of, you know, that that's how the world is. That's how life is. Oh, you know, I think um, <laughs> he was not expecting I, that one, guys. He was not expecting that one. I, you know, I don't and I don't want I want to be thoughtful. Um, uh, let me let me preface my answer to that by saying, uh, as human beings, you know, regardless of your faith, I mean, truly regardless of your faith, if you're atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, Hindu, you know, Jewish, no matter what it is, um, uh, there, you know, people are generally wired to be better at one of two things than the other. People are generally wired to be either truth tellers or lovers. And, and in my faith, what I believe is uh, the only person who ever did that perfectly, who was great at being a truth lover and great at being a lover at the same time, was Jesus. And that uh, he could say the most audacious things to you that are very confrontational, but he, 
he somehow was able to say it in a way to communicate love. But the most of the rest of us uh, are screwed and we don't have that gift, <laughs> especially me. And, and, and I, I, am, I am wired to be a truth teller. I am not wired to be a lover. So for me to grow as a human being, I need to, I need to embrace the fact that, I, you know, I need to learn how to love people better. <clears throat> so, you know, consequently, uh, I married a girl who's the opposite. Uh, she's, you know, she's strong at the other, others uh, on the other way, uh, other way around. And that generally is how people connect with other people too, um, frankly. So, so with that as a context, I, you know, I'm probably less, uh, sympathetic or empathetic than I should be to my own, uh, fault, uh, for, for the suffering. Um, I, I, um, I tend to be more stoic and look at facts and, you know, try to uncover the truth and figure out what people aren't saying and where's the 1% lie and, and all that. But it doesn't really shake my faith either. Uh, I don't know that, I don't know that that's connected to, to, um, uh, connected to my, uh, faith walk as much it is just in my personality because i think frankly i think that every walk of faith i mean it doesn't matter even people who are atheists who think they don't have room for faith you're having faith in the fact that there is no faith i mean everybody has a dimension to figure out the world on that uh in that in that sense of the word uh, but people also have personalities um and mine mine would be to be less um empathetic than i i probably ought to be how was that for a rambling answer i think that was much better than you're going to give yourself credit for but i think once you listen to it again you'll you'll feel pretty good about it. i had i had not either i had forgotten or i hadn't heard you sort of do the the truth-telling lover dichotomy and i'm definitely with you on the truth-telling and um uh, I just wasn't wired for faith. I also wasn't wired for not faith. I'm kind of that person that's in the middle and just kind of holds up his hands and shrugs and says, I don't know. But to the extent that I do have faith in anything or that I have had faith in anything, it has been in human beings and it has been in human ingenuity and human creativity and also in human community and in the ability of human beings when the chips are down, when things are bad to come together and to fight things. And I got to tell you that personally, this whole thing has been really shaking for me because um, human beings could have stopped this thing. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons it didn't get stopped was because of some weird conception, you know, in China that it needed to be afraid of the United States and that the United States was going to take advantage of it. I mean, it's not strange. The United States literally just did that with the trade war and with African swine fever and all the ways that they tried to get better trade concessions from the Chinese based on a real um, epidemic they were having in their pork herd and they, you know, prices were increasing all these other things. So I, I understand that there was some, there, there was some fear there, but I was talking to somebody recently about the 2008 financial crisis. And he kind of told me, look, the difference between now and 2008, the biggest difference is that when 2008 happened, as soon as it happened, uh, the United States picked up the phone and called China and China picked up the phone and called the United States. And there was a hotline there. And we were talking back and forth this entire time. And you had the two most powerful countries in the world, the two biggest economies in the world working together, not always necessarily working in tandem, but always keeping the other one involved, always telling the other one what they were doing, trying to make sure that overall the global system was going to get through that challenge and survive. And what I'm seeing right now is the exact opposite. China and the United States are not talking. The reason that this pandemic became what it became was because instead of people trusting each other and understanding that we were in a real crisis, people were kind of like, well, that's their problem. It's not my problem. And of course, eventually it became our problem. So uh, for me, it's it's been really distressing to think about um, how human fear seems to be out out outbalancing human love or human truth telling or human trust or all those other positive qualities. And um, it, it makes me nervous about what's going to happen going forward. Cause I think you're going to see some of that decoupling that we talked about and, and, and you'll get to a place where there isn't that kind of trust. And, and that's kind of what I meant about the global economy, not going back to the way that it was before all this started. Cause it just feels like human beings are dealing with each other differently. And the, the biggest irony of is uh, the biggest irony of it all, or the biggest tragedy of it all, is the virus doesn't give a shit. The virus is going to kill me right. just like it's going to kill a Chinese, just like it's going to kill a South African. Sure. And it's not going to care. And I just am not seeing 
people come together at all. I'm seeing people are very afraid and I understand people are very afraid, but I, I don't see people coming together. I see people actually trying to use the crisis to get richer or get more, or get more powerful or get more this. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm, I'm struggling with that. It's, it's kind of shaking my head a little bit. Well, and, and um, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And I, and I, I do think we're, you know, we're going through kind of some generational attitudinal shifts and um, who knows where those go. I don't know. The, the end of it really is unknowable at this point. I mean, it, it could be that we get far enough down the road that, that, that this polarization gets so, so wide that somebody actually does drive a truck right through the middle of it. And it, and it, you know, it, it kind of collapses on itself or not, or, you know, it could be that it gets further and further apart and it creates world war. I, I don't, I don't know. That's above my pay grade. Well, your, your pay grade is pretty high probably compared to the list. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's good. Well, I don't know about that. Hey, do you think this is going to be over? Uh, you kind of mentioned June. Did you throw that out there? Because that, that's kind of what you're seeing. That's the, that's the, that's the, sort of the, you know, you I have no idea. I can tell you that. So I'm a, I'm an, an, I'm an alumnus of Cornell University. Um, they postponed their commencement, which is usually Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, now that that's New York State, and maybe different states are going to be in different levels of lockdown for different amounts of time. And maybe the way that this happens is that other regions are there for the states that are going to be more impacted than this. But um, yeah, I, I think this is. I think this could last a while. I'm I'm thinking in terms of months, uh, not weeks. I, I would view if we get to July and August and there's been no change, I would kind of view that as catastrophic. But I I gotta think. I mean, the U.S. government has already proven me wrong, but I gotta think that there is enough political ingenuity to get us to June. Um, and again, this is all dependent on people actually staying home and actually doing the stuff they're supposed to be doing. Because part of the reason we're in this situation is because people didn't lock down when they needed to lock down. And so now things are going to get worse that way. P- if people take it seriously, um, yeah, ho- hopefully May, June is kind of when I feel the thing's going to shift. But I can't say I have a lot of faith in anything right now, because like I told you, I mean, I got people texting me trying to play basketball this weekend. It's, it's great yeah. here. <laughs> well, you know, the, um, uh, just anecdotally, I, my, I have, I have three kids. My middle son is a senior in high school. He's got a killer job waiting tables at a local restaurant, a really high end restaurant. And, and all the guys that he's working with are like, like adults. Like he's, he works next to people who are paying the rent check with their tips. Um, Mm. and, and so these guys are his buddies and they're screwed. Like, he just comes home and eats my food. He doesn't have to worry about anything. Right. But, but the guys that he's working next to, and, and it's just such a close upfront and personal picture of what, I mean, there's just millions of those people that, that, you know, from here till, till June is a long time. Well, and, and to your point that people who have means are doing okay. But the other thing here that we haven't talked about is that wealth inequality in this country is worse than it has ever been in the history of the United States, as long as that's been recorded full stop. I mean, we were and, already, we were already at worse levels of wealth inequality than the Great Depression. And th- that and, was when everything was going fine. <laughs> and by the way, what we're doing now from a monetary policy, not so much a fiscal policy standpoint, I'm sure they'll figure out how to make that mostly or at least partially about about labor. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but on a mon- monetary policy standpoint, you're make you're throwing you're printing money, th- throwing dollar bills into the marketplace increasing liquidity so people with people with money will have an ability to borrow money and make money um and and you're driving that wedge even deeper so the solution that we're using is 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 really not a solution it's begetting more i'm not saying that we should do anything else i don't have a better solution but we're clearly reinforcing this this massive wedge yeah i gotta tell you though that one of the most surprising things to me was that I mean, this crisis was tailor-made for Bernie Sanders. He's been railing about health care now, rightfully so, I think, for decades. And here you have a health care crisis. He's been railing about wealth inequality for all this time. Uh, and this crisis happens, which kind of proves him right, which everything that he's been warning about and everything that he's been talking about kind of comes to fruition. And ironically, people are so scared and so panicked that the idea of voting for somebody who is as anti-establishment as Bernie Sanders or an Andrew Yang is just out the door. And who did they go to? They went to Joe Biden. They went to the name that felt comfortable 
that yeah. felt pure and it's just going to perpetuate the stuff that we're talking about right now i agree yeah he he'll be he's down the middle of the fairway kind of a guy in 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 that respect and i say that with quotes um i will say this about bernie sanders um uh, the one, the one area that we're—I won't say the one area. One of the areas I alluded to earlier that we're bullish about is biotech, and and I think you really have to think about uh, healthcare uh, not as a not as a uniform juggernaut. I mean, there are clearly things broken in our healthcare system with pharmaceuticals, you know, extending. Uh, you know, their right to uh, keep their drug patents longer and charge higher and more exorbitant fees and blah, blah, blah. But but the cutting edge of science is biotech and biotech is going to the, the fastest, best, most efficient way for us to fix this crisis is for biotech to come up with something quickly to treat this disease. And I think that's going to happen. I think that that there will be a shift in the perception of biotech in particular, because people, there might, there might be a chance that people recognize that uh, the ingenuity uh, to, to, to bridge some of the gaps in scientific advancements that are, that are happening on a daily basis in that particular sector of the economy are astounding, necessary, and you, you don't really want to kill those. We can talk about killing the monopolies and talk about unfair uh, revenue streams for tired drugs that really haven't been improved, uh, but that's a different, that's a different issue than the cutting edge of venture capital biotech uh, ingenuity. I think you're exactly right. And the the kind of analog case that I would talk about is is kind of microchips in the cell phone in general, because, and this, this I think geopolitics dovetails really closely with what you're talking about here, because right now biotech is actually really exposed to those supply chains I was talking about in China, especially pharma. A lot of those supply chains, they're exposed in China. There's not a whole heck of a lot they can do. But I think two things are going to happen here. Number one, you're going to see a lot of that come either back to the United States or back to the near abroad. Number two, the U.S. government's going to name that a strategic sector. I don't know if they'll do it officially, but it's going to become something as important as as the army or as telecommunications. Like, you know, we're talking about 5G and Huawei, all this other stuff. Biotech's going to be a part of that. And the U.S. government is going to throw the full weight and force of the United States government behind making sure that it goes forward and also protecting it from abroad. And I, I bring up the microchip example because the whole reason that the microchip industry took off was not because Steve Jobs you know, woke up one day and invented an iPhone or, or any of these other things. It was that in the 1960s, when they were trying to design more precision-guided missiles, microchips were the only thing that they could put on a missile in order to make sure that it struck its target. And Texas Instruments and the whole microchip industry starts because the United States military says, we're in this Cold War with the Soviet Union. We want this stuff. We are going to throw money at this thing that nobody else could ever figure out how to utilize that technology. Uh, the application of biotechnology like you're talking about is immensely clear. It's a huge sector because it's human health, but it's also how to deal with climate change. It's also designing crops that are more drought resistant and more in harsher environments. Due to climate change, it goes all over the place. And I think that, like I said, I think there's going to be kind of a reckoning here in the next two to three years in biotech as they figure out their supply chain and they figure out their relationship with the U.S. government. But that's going to be a huge deal, and they're going to have so much money and so much support behind them besides the venture capital, besides all the things you're talking about. Yeah. So we, we do a lot of work in that specific sector. We think it's even before this crisis, we do a lot of work, and we've we just think that over the next 10 years, uh, the runway is, is just, it's just awesome. I mean, you know, there's lots of dynamics. The big pharma's patents are rolling off. They've got to replace their IP. They never, they never really have been good at creating it in-house. Uh, you know, so small cap biotech, is, those are acquisition targets. And if you can actually produce scientific advancement, you'll, you'll be compensated for that. And, and we're tackling, we're just tackling things that we, it's just breathtaking what we're tackling. And actually most of that is really based on the fact that the human genome project being fully mapped is now a 20 year old project. And mm -hmm. the way that, the way that that is seeping into how clinical trials get requested and authorized by the FDA and the things that, and the specificity for the way you can design those trials uh, based on what we know about the human genome, you know, it's an order of magnitude shift in in what what we think will be outcomes 
for that industry on a go forward basis. It's also going to be an amazing test of that question that you posed to me, which is can an authoritarian system be as creative and as um, revolutionary as a more open capitalist free market system? And I can, I mean, in China, biotech is just as important and they are trying to develop their own line of vaccines, their own line of important drugs. They are also pouring state resources at it, at it too. So in a certain sense, I think between the United States and China, we're already seeing this a little bit. We're seeing it with this. We saw it with African swine fever. Biotech's going to be a front line of competition. And whoever's going to be better at it is going to be able to have a lot more national power than the other one. And it's going to be, like you said, it's going to be an authoritarian top-down system that has ordered this thing versus a kind of more grassroots system built on creativity and free market and all that other stuff. And we're going to see which one of those. I mean, maybe maybe they both become successful, but... I just bring it up because I think it's going to be an interesting test of exactly that thing that you talked about, which system works better. Yeah, totally. Totally get that. It'll be it'll be a good ride. All right. Well, before you get out of here, Jeremy, anything I didn't ask you that you wanted me to ask you or anything you want to ask me? Uh, no, man, I should have come up with a stumper. I mean, you threw that uh, <laughs> faith question, but I'm unprepared. I got nothing. I got nothing. Well, that, that just means you'll have to come back and we appreciate you uh, coming on and dropping some knowledge with us, my friend, man, it's been fun. Thanks for having me. I really enjoy it. And, uh, you're, you're a, uh, you're a, a really fun person to uh, disagree with. <laughs> the feeling is mutual. <laughs> All right, y'all. Thanks for listening. We will see you out there. Stay safe. Take care. <laughs>